happen to him. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him tomorrow. But he does know this, that because of the prayers of other people and the help of the Holy Spirit, he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. So he does know beyond a doubt that. So let's let's uh, read the scripture, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. So the scripture is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. Then we're going to jump down to verse 19. And it says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Father God, we come before you now, Lord, and we ask that you'll be with us. We want to learn about prayer, or we want to learn how to pray. We want your Holy Spirit to touch us this morning, to move us, so that we understand prayer, and that our lives will be lives of prayer. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. All right, so the first thing we want to look at, and the first thing we want to understand is that prayer is a part of the Christian life. Prayer is normal, prayer is natural. And if you are a Christian, you will pray. And as we look at that prayer being part of it, we can see that the first thing we see is that prayer is the evidence of a changed life. Prayer is the evidence of a changed life. When we look at the Apostle Paul, when he was converted, um, the first thing that uh, God tells him, or so there's a guy named Ananias, and God tells Ananias, I want you to go. I want you to go to this town. I want you to go to this street. And I want you to look for a guy um, from Tarsus named Saul. And the evidence that he gives him, so Ananias is nervous about Saul. He heard about Saul. He was persecuting the church. And the comfort that God gives Ananias is, behold, he is praying. This was the evidence that God gave to Ananias that there was true conversion, that the apostle Paul was indeed a Christian. And as we walk through scripture, we see that God calls us to um, pray as individuals. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, Jesus says this, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And so God calls us to pray as individuals. But God not only calls us to pray as individuals, but he calls us to pray as groups, as part of, as part of being a believer in a group of believers. In the book of Acts, we see the beginning of the church. It all starts out. And we see there that the believers are going to devote themselves to four things. These are these four pillars that they're devoting their lives to, and they're devoting everything to. And it says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the preaching of the word, the hearing of the word. That's the first pillar. The second one is fellowship. The third pillar is breaking of bread, which could be communion, the Lord's um, Supper, other fellowship times. And the fourth pillar is prayer. These are the four pillars that they're going to build this church on. And prayer is one of those pillars. And so prayer should be a part of our normal Christian life. Whether you're at home by yourself, whether you're at church, whether you're in a Bible study, a small group, a youth group, whether you're visiting someone in the hospital, or whether you're just with friends and just fellowship, prayer should be a part of it. And why is prayer a part 
such a big part of it. One of the reasons is that Jesus prayed. It was such a huge, huge part of Jesus' life. Mark 1.35 says this, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and he went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So it's early morning. It's still dark, and he goes out and prays. We see in Luke, it says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued to pray to God. John chapter 17 is an entire chapter of just one prayer where Jesus prays to the Father. We are made in the image of God, and we will be like God and Jesus. And Jesus prays, therefore we pray. It is who we are as Christians. It is part of who we are. Not only is it just kind of who we are, but in addition to that, it's what we do. And so what we do as prayer is sometimes we could consider it to be spiritual work. Listen to Colossians chapter 4, verse 12. And remember this guy, Epaphras, because we're going to come back several times this morning and talk about him. Um, but it says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers so that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul says Epaphras is one of you. He's no different. He is like you. And he is always struggling on your behalf. And we should do the same. It is our spiritual work. It is part of our calling. And in addition to everyone doing it, there's a special part that leaders play that leaders need to... Um, Pray about everything. Once again, we go back to the book of Acts. They're beginning the church. And the leaders are kind of torn all over this way and that way. And they're pulled everywhere. And they stop one day and they say, it's not right. This is Acts 6, 2, and 4. It's not right that we should give up preaching the, the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. They're going to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. So if you're involved in leading anything, whether it's a class or a Bible study, a youth group, a small group, children's ministry, anything at all, make prayer one of the foundational things that you do in leading that. Prayer and the ministry of the Word. Warren, can you just me that water right there? Um, all right, so that's my mistake. All right, so I'm assuming, I'm assuming that so far, nothing that I've said is new to you. There's nothing unusual, and you've already known it. So before your mind starts wandering and you kind of check out, you start asking yourself questions like, why does the NFL have a bye week anyway? I want, <laughs> I want you to... <laughs> if you're like me, you'll be like, why are the Patriots going? But anyway... Um, I want you to know what I'm trying to do, right? What I'm trying to do is to remind you to pray. I started writing this sermon, and as I'm writing it, I was like, it seems like I preached on prayer before. So here's a question. Does anyone remember me preaching on prayer before? Nobody, okay? This is fine because I didn't remember me preaching on prayer. And so I look, but I'm like, I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. So I went back and looked at my sermons in February of this year. So only like, what is that, like nine, ten months ago. I preached in First Thessalonians. 
And it was, he, he had given us three things. It was rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. One third of my sermon was on prayer. And I couldn't remember it. I'm like, I think I did that. So I don't expect anybody here to remember that. Which brings me up to a point. The only reason I'm doing this is just because we want to understand how preaching is. At least I do, because I struggle with this, thinking, thinking that this. And again, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to remind you to pray, right? Because we need to be reminded constantly. So I heard someone talking once, and they were, they were a pastor, and they were saying, it really, really bummed me out when people didn't remember my sermons. He said, I thought a sermon was like, I would give them a piece of paper. They would take the piece of paper, they would open up the file drawer, they would drop it in there, and they could come back to that file drawer at any time, take the piece of paper out, and they'd remember what I preached on. He said, in reality, it, was, it isn't like that at all. He said, in reality, it's like, it's like someone has a piece of clay, and they're going to make something out of it. And so they soften the clay, and they knead the clay, and they form the clay, and they finish the clay, and they do all this. He said, every sermon is like that. It has an impact. And you're going you're gonna to feel in some way. So even like this sermon, this is God speaking to us, right? He's the sculptor who does this. And everyone is just going to add to it and add to it and um, add to it. And so in our understanding of prayer and in our being changed and in our being formed into um, being more and more Christ-like, and in looking at this prayer, I want to address some of the difficulties that we have because we all have difficulties when it comes to prayer and these little things that come up. Um, many times, prayer ends up being this small part of our life. You know, Jesus says pray continually. And it seems for, all, for so much, it's just a small part. Why is that? There can be a number of reasons. The first reason we know for sure is that the enemy does not want us to pray absolutely does not want us to pray. Anything that brings us closer to God, anything that makes us uh, lead a more holy life, he is opposed to, and he will try to stop you from praying. And it seems like, too, whenever we pray, it's like every little distraction, every little distraction becomes totally magnified, right? You never realize how tired you are until you start praying. You never realize how uncomfortable these chairs are until you start praying. You never realize how many background noises there are or any of this stuff until you're praying. And especially in a group, it seems like all of this stuff is magnified because the enemy doesn't want you to pray. And your mind starts to wander too, doesn't it? And it seems like it latches on to anything at all that's possible. It's kind of like that saying about the ADD where, you know, the person says, it's, they say I have ADD, but they don't understand. It's just that, oh wait, look, a chicken. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how it is for us, right? We start, and we start, and any little distraction, it's like, oh, look, a chicken. So in the middle of our prayer, we're doing that. Um, there are other difficulties as well. And I want to break those down kind of into, like, logistical-type difficulties and some that are more like the nature of prayer kind of difficulties. So the first difficulty, prayer is hard work. Epaphras in that passage says, um, or this passage, I think we have this to show up, slide number six. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Epaphras, who is one of you, is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. The NASB says, always laboring earnestly. NIV says, he is always wrestling in his prayers for you. Hard work is hard. And it's our path, it's our nature to take the path of least resistance. 
But God has called us to prayer, and God has called us to hard work. And it's not that it's always hard, right? And it's not that it's just this tough duty that we have to perform at all. The verse says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And listen to Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about everything, but everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Jesus Christ. There should be joy. There should be rejoicing. And there should be thankfulness in the times that we pray. Yes, it's hard. But that doesn't mean there isn't the rejoicing and the thankfulness and that attitude. Another difficulty, another thing that we battle with is time, right? There just is never enough time. Something else is always more urgent. There's something else to do. There's some fire that needs to be put out. And in 1 Thessalonians, God says, Jesus says, pray without ceasing. And one commentator put it this way. Pray without ceasing doesn't mean a constant mumbling of prayers, but it's the attitude of the heart, the desire of the heart. It's continual personal fellowship with God and consciousness of being in his presence throughout the day. It's a life of always trusting, waiting, and resting in God. It means to pray persistently and regularly. It is constantly recurring, not continuously occurring. The next thing sometimes we have a difficulty with is knowing what to pray for. We don't always know what to pray for. But again, in Epaphras, it says this. It says, Epaphras is always struggling for you, right, on your behalf, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Paul says, this is what he's praying for, that you may stand mature, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you may be fully assured in all of God's will. So when you pray for yourself, pray these things. When you pray for others, pray that they will stand mature. Pray that they'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Pray that they will be fully assured in all the will of God. So those are some of the just kind of the logistical type difficulties. There's other difficulties that we struggle with, maybe more than that, or just in a different, kind of a different way that we struggle with them. And uh, these are kind of the nature of prayer, to use a lack of a better term. But the first is certainty and uncertainty. Um, let's read Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. And it says this. It says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your, or, on your account. See, Paul is filled with both certainty and uncertainty. He is filled with certainty in his expectations, but he's uncertain in how things are going to work out. In his certainty, he says, I will rejoice. It is my eager expectation. It is my hope. I know, I know that through your prayers and the hope 
and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Elsewhere in Romans 8.28, he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. In Philippians, he says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is absolutely certain that God will save him, will help him, will strengthen him, will bring him to completion, will ultimately bring him to heaven. He is absolutely certain of that. There is no doubt in his mind. But at the same time, he's uncertain. He's uncertain about how things will work out. He's uncertain about life's details, what will happen. He says, what should I choose? I cannot tell. He doesn't know what he's going to choose. He, he's certain about this outcome, but he doesn't know what he's going to choose right here. He says, I am hard-pressed between the two. There's this uncertainty that lies with or alongside that certainty. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what he will do. He doesn't know how things are going to work out. And that's where we live as well. We are absolutely certain about some things and totally uncertain about the other thing. Right? Because we know where the road leads, but we don't know any of the turns along the way. I was driving home the other night. It was about 7.30 at night, and it was, um, I had to go on these back roads for quite a few miles, many miles actually in these back roads. And these back roads are filled with hills and with turns and turns on hills. And it's dark that night. And on top of that, it's really, really foggy. And I'm driving these roads, and I can't really tell what's coming up at all. And I can't tell where the turns are until I'm, like, right on top of them. I'm, like, turning, you know, putting on the brakes. And I can't tell it was after a storm if there was any fallen branches on there. It's night. It's dark. It's foggy. I don't know these things that are coming up. But I knew where the road would end. And I knew where I would be when I got to the end of the road. That road ended at my house. And at the end of the road and at my house, I knew that I would be inside, in my living room, in front of the fire, telling Mickey about my herring drive home. I was certain, maybe it wasn't that bad, but <laughs> I was certain, it was at the time when I was driving all around and you can't see anything, right? But the thing is, I was certain where the road ended, but I didn't know what was going to happen between there because I didn't it was so dark and foggy I couldn't you know remember where I was and that's the way it is right we don't know the turns in front of us we don't know the hills in front of us but we we don't know the details right we don't know if the things we try will work out or the things we try will not work out and sometimes when they don't work out they don't make any sense to us but we have this absolute certainty and you can have this absolute certainty that if you love God all things will work together for your good God's glory. If God began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. You can be absolutely certain about that. Christian hope makes the outcome certain, but it leaves open the time and the way along there. The next difficulty that we come up with is our faith. Our faith, right? Because we know that Jesus tells us to have faith. We know that faith is essential to prayer. And oftentimes he told his disciples, oh, you of little faith. And so what happens is sometimes when we pray, we feel like our faith is not enough. We believe somewhat, but we just don't feel like we believe enough. And we really think that God answers prayers, but we're not certain that he's going to answer our prayers 
because of our weak faith. And oftentimes we believe that others' faith is greater than our own faith. And so it seems like whenever there's something really important, we reach out to the people who we think have the faith to answer, right? We all have those people, don't we? For me, it's my parents and my brother. If there's anything really important that comes up, I'm like on the phone to my parents and I'm texting my brother, no matter what time of day it is. I'm like, can you pray for that? Because I have more faith in their faith than I have faith in my faith, right? And it just seems like that's the, that's the case. So what is the answer to this? What does God tell us to do? To pray to him. To ask him to increase our faith. Because you're not the only one who struggles with this. You're not the only one. We can read the disciples. The disciples asked Jesus, they're like, increase our faith. They asked Jesus, these are his disciples. If they don't have faith, who does have faith? Right? When we look at it, and they're like, increase our faith. There's a story um, in Scripture, too, where this, uh, this father and his boy is going through these um, things, and um, he asked Jesus to help him. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. You believe. Ask God to help you in your unbelief. He will answer that prayer. He will give you the faith. And then it's also important to recognize that our faith is faith in God. Our faith isn't faith in our faith, right? But so often our faith becomes faith in our faith and not faith in God. Our faith isn't that we can do something. Our faith isn't that we're strong enough. Our faith isn't that our faith is strong enough. Our faith is that God is sovereign and that he's loving and he controls everything. That is where our faith lies. There's another difficulty that we face. And this actually comes after we pray. The difficulty that we face is that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers the way we ask them. We ask yes, and he answers no. It doesn't mean that he didn't hear our prayers. It doesn't mean that our prayers were selfish. Doesn't mean our prayers are wrong. Doesn't mean that we don't have enough faith. What it means is that He is God and His will will be done. If you look at the Lord's Prayer, it says this Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Sometimes we struggle because we want our will to be done. And to be, honest, to be honest, it's very, very difficult when we don't get what we think we need. Sometimes it's hard because it seems like we pray for the right things. And no one could find fault in the prayer that we answer, or that we ask God. But God doesn't um, answer it that way. The problem is that we are finite people, right? We have limited knowledge. We don't know the future. We don't know how God is working. We don't know how God is working in our lives. We don't know how God is working in other people's lives. See, God is sovereign and God is loving. God is loving and God is sovereign. 
If we miss any of these two things, we have this tough, extremely difficult time, but God answers no. If we believe that he is sovereign, but that he's not loving, then he seems like a cold, ruthless, calculating God. If we believe that he's a loving God, but not a God who is sovereign, not a God who is in control of all things, then he's a powerless old grandfather, unable to control anything and open to making mistakes. But God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is all-loving. And again, in Romans 8, it says that what he does, he does for our good and for his glory. But even if we know this, right? Even if we understand that God is sovereign and that God is loving and that what he does is for our good and for his glory, even if we understand this and we believe this with all our heart, soul, strength, and might, and we accept it, it is still so hard when God says no, right? And this is where the battle then lies. The battle be lies between our knowledge and our emotions. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he is good. We know that he is loving. And we know what happened happens for the best. But we still have our emotions. We cannot just put away our emotions with knowledge. And it's hard to stop feeling a loss. And that's where this battle is. There's a philosophy out there that is absolutely, totally wrong. And you may have heard it. But it says this. In cases like this, what you need to do is forgive God. In cases like this, you need to forgive God. They think the, the relationship between me and God has been damaged because God has said no to me. The relationship has to be stored. Therefore, I have to forgive God. I only bring this up because you may have heard it. It's completely wrong. Because it's putting you in the place of God. It's putting you as the all-knowing, all-wise being. It's putting you above God. It's putting you below God. It is wrong. But we still have these emotions, right? And they battle against our knowledge that God is a loving, wise, caring God. I have a friend who, have a, who has a loved one who died of cancer. And she prayed, and she prayed that God would cure this person, and that they wouldn't die of cancer. But God didn't. This, is, this prayer that she prayed that God would cure the cancer was a good and right prayer. And you can back it up scripturally, because we can look in James, and it says, if anyone is sick, we're to pray for them. Call the elders, have them anointed with oil, and pray for these people, so we know that this prayer was right and that was good. There was nothing wrong or selfish about it. And God said, no. This person who passed away was a Christian. And as um, the Apostle Paul said in today's passage, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. To depart and to be with Christ is far better. And so this person who was praying um, knows this. And they know it in their heart that this person is in a better place. But they told me this. They said, this is where the struggle is. My knowing this and my feeling this. And to be honest with you, I have a hard time trusting God. This person was totally truthful, totally honest, and totally clear and perceptive into seeing where our struggle lies. That's where our struggle lies. That's where we need to pray for each other. That's where we need to pray for ourselves. Because it is hard 
when these things come up. And this is when we have to go to God. We have to go to God and we have to be honest. And we have to pour out our hearts to God. And we have to go to each other. We have to pour out our hearts to each other as well. And we need to tell God, and we need to ask other people to pray for us, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing heart. Because that battle is there, and we will come up with that. Behind and to the side of our hearth, of our house, is a marsh. I grew up in Minnesota, so you'll probably understand this. In Minnesota, we call them swamps, right? <laughs> we moved out here, and Mickey wanted to call it a marsh. It sounds a lot better than living with, than having a swamp behind your house. I think the technical term now is uh, wetlands, right? I know it's not a pond because the water is green and not blue. <laughs> but the thing is, um, um, it was always at the side of the house and on that side of the house our house is like this it's this side right here there was no windows and that entire end we had a fireplace on one side and we had like a hutch on the other side so after living there for about um 20 years we decided that we wanted to um put in a window um and so because before that the only way to see the marsh was to was to leave the house and to go outside or to sit on the porch and kind of sit like at an angle and look at the marsh. Otherwise, you couldn't see it at all. So we put the window in instead. It took us 20 years to say, hey, we should put a window there so we can see this beautiful wetlands behind us. But we did it. And so now we have this, we have this big picture window there. I hung two bird feeders, one on the right side, one on the left side, so the birds come up, the cardinals and the finches and everything else like that. And at the edge of the marsh stands this dead tree. And there's a palliated woodpecker, if I'm saying that right word right, the ones that are like this big, and it will come there. It will just try to get like bugs, and we'll watch that. Yesterday we were, um, we were there. Lauren was uh, with us as well. And there's a great blue heron comes floating down lands, walks around for the marsh a little while, and then like flies away. These great blue herons are absolutely huge. And so we're watching this stuff, and there's not a single day, there's not a single day that goes by that I don't walk up to that window and I just look outside. I look for great blue herons, I look for the woodpeckers, I look for the other things. I just like to look at it, it's just a beautiful, beautiful um, thing. On a Saturday morning, I'll make a cup of coffee and I'll just walk up to the window and I'll just sit here with my coffee, drink my coffee, just plain look out the window. Now the thing is, the marsh was always there. The great blue herons always flew in and flew out. The woodpeckers were always at that dead tree, but I never saw it. I never noticed it. And now that the window is here, I can see it every single day and I go to that window two three four five six times a day and I just look out that window the same is true with prayer prayer has always been there right God has always been available the Holy Spirit has always been ready to intercede for us but we don't always see it and this morning what I want you to do is to see that prayer is there Prayer is always there. And one of the aspects of prayer that I want you to see is that prayer is effective. And that prayer has great power in it. Let's look at uh, this passage um, in James. James chapter 5, verse 16 to 18, it says this. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Let me say that again. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. 
And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain in the earth for its fruit. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And we saw this morning, and this was, again, Paul mentioned that this was just God's way of teaching us. He brings in Steve, who we haven't seen for, I think he said, like 10 years since you've been up here. And 25 years before that, Paul meets him and he starts praying. 25 years later, Steve's now a believer. Now he's on the mission field. And I think you said you've sent out 140 teams and you've done all this stuff like that. What an amazing thing that prayer is. And what an amazing thing that God orchestrated this this morning, that we see this. Prayer is a great thing. That's why James can say the prayer of a righteous person has great power at his working. So again, we have to ask ourselves why. And this is because we have access to God himself. We have access to God himself. There's a guy named uh, Rankin Wilborn, and he wrote a book called Union with Christ. Let me read this quote from it. Um, he says this. He says, you are invited into the grandest party and the greatest community there ever could be, the life of God. You have been given access, not eventually, not one day, now. The access is like no other that we have ever experienced. Whether you voted for the current president or not, none of us would expect him or her to take our phone call. We wouldn't think, well, I voted for him. Surely I have access to him. You might believe that he cares about the concerns of the citizens in general, right? You might concern that. You might understand that. But no one uh, expects the president of the nation to care about your particular concerns, nor to get involved with you personally. And a lot of us approach God like we do the president. We assume he's much too important and busy to care about little old me. But union with Christ tells you that you are united to the one who always has access and who lives to give you access to the executive office of the universe. This is about living with a whole new frame of confidence. You are united and to the enthroned king above all kings and the ruler of kings on earth. This is why prayer is so powerful. Because you have access to the king of kings. You have access to the Lord of the lords. You have access to the God of the universe. And not only that, but scripture tells us you have access God, but the Holy Spirit intercedes for you. Romans, uh, I think it's Romans, yeah, 8.26 says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words. And not only does the Holy Spirit intercede for us, but he does it because it's the will of the Father. He says the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And the Apostle Paul recognizes the work of the Holy Spirit. He recognizes our need for the Holy Spirit. Because he says in verse 19, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of, of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that we can do nothing that we can do nothing without the Spirit. And it's through the Spirit's direct help that things work out. Paul then tells them, pray for me. He says, I need your prayers. 
I need the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And this is the way that things will turn out for my deliverance. He says he needs both. They are intertwined in his mind. He says, in effect, that the Spirit helps him. And one of the reasons is because they pray for him. And this is what we are to do for each other. This is one of the responsibilities that we have. It is to put one another's spiritual growth in the forefront of our prayers. It is to, and we need to take that responsibility very seriously. Remember Epaphras, right? It said he was always struggling on behalf of your, or always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. So pray for one another. I cannot say it strongly enough. Pray for one another. And we see this throughout Paul's writings. 1 Corinthians 1.11, he says, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted to us through the prayers of many. He pleads with them to prayer. He considers that their prayers are tangible, real, solid help. Prayer is not optional. Prayer is not optional. Look at 1 Samuel 12, 23. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. Make prayer a part of your life. Make it who you are. Make it what you do. Mickey's brother, so my brother-in-law bankrupt, is 73 years old. 73 years old. He runs three miles a day. He does 100 push-ups a day. He does 100 sit-ups a day. Again, he's 73 years old. He started running in high school, and he just never stopped. Mickey calls him Stone Belly, or sometimes Old Stone Belly. <laughs> but really, I mean, you can't think about it. You're 73 years old. You started in high school with 100 sit-ups. You know what I mean? 100 push-ups and running every single day. He still does it. Um, Brendan was watching him uh, one day, if I can throw Brendan out here. And he said, he said this quote, he said, I've never seen anyone his age that have made me feel so bad about the shape that I'm in. <laughs> of course I had to agree, right? I'm like, oh, I think you're right. Because there's no way I can keep up with him. He's 73. There's, a, there's no possible way that if we went out to run that I could keep up with him. There's no possible way that if we had a push-up contest, I would ever win. There's no possible way the sit-ups, I couldn't even go with him to the, like the 75, 50, 25, maybe 10, maybe I could keep up. I'm not quite sure. But I can't keep up with this 73-year-old guy. Why? Because he started in high school and he never stopped. He never stopped. He just continued and continued and continued. And I can tell you this afternoon, after church, after lunch, he's going to be running three miles. He's going to be doing 100 sit-ups. He's going to be doing 100 push-ups. Make prayer like that for you. Start praying today and just never stop. Let me close in prayer. The band can come up. Father God, we come before you.